Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? A show where our host engages in a lively conversation with the guest. The guest chooses the topic and the host has no prior preparation or knowledge of the topic. Please note that the opinions expressed on this program are the opinions and views of the host and the guests and are not necessarily the same opinions and views of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studio. And now, here's your host, Chad Knight. Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? Episode 55. Welcome to my mind there. Roswell, New Mexico, Area 51, Cattle Mutilations, Reptilian Overlords, 9-11, the JFK Assassination, Bigfoot, Flat Earthers, Moon Landings, Global Warming, Paul McCartney is Dead, Chemtrails, Hitler Survived World War II, Artificial Diseases, Diet Love Pass, Vaccines Cause Autism, New Coke, Marilyn Monroe. What do all these things have in common? They're all conspiracy theories. Here's a little something about me a lot of people don't know. I love conspiracy theories. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I believe everything put out by the theorists? No. What I do love about conspiracy theories, though, is the way people go about looking at things from a different point of view and how other people tend to fall in line just because somebody makes a documentary or someone writes a blog. So let's take a look. Let's take a quick look at a few of my favorites. I've spent countless hours watching documentaries about aliens and UFOs. I love the idea that there's more to this universe than just us. The idea that we are it makes me feel very lonely and feel like we might be nothing more than a mistake. If this universe was created by a god and he simply made us and no more, seems a waste of a great expanse for a bunch of insects who don't have any regard for the world or people around them on a large scale. This is one conspiracy I would say that I'm a believer in, and I hope they are out there and maybe they listen to the podcast. The other one I want to talk about is the JFK assassination. Another theory I've spent a lot of time watching and reading about. Was it a lone gunman? Was it the CIA? Was there a shady accomplice on the grassy knoll? Here's the problem as I see it. This is an old case, but not a cold case. A gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, was caught and said he did it. So why the conspiracy? In my opinion, because it was too clean and too tidy and too easy. Then a few days later, the only person who could say for sure if he did it or not was gunned down while many Americans watched the news and ate supper. Right in their living rooms, they saw a man murdered on live TV. Now, I have my own theories about this one. And for the sake of this, I'll say, I think Lee Harvey Oswald was a stool pigeon. He may have even killed JFK, but he did so on orders. So, those of you that listen, let me know some of your favorite conspiracy theories and Maybe I'll work them into a later welcome to my mind mare and mind mare. Now, I'm going to touch on this again, uh, this whole part of people sharing the podcast. I, I've asked earlier or the last couple of episodes that, you know, when you listen to it, if you enjoy what you're hearing, share it out. It doesn't take much time. You can hit the share button on, on Facebook. You can hit the share button on Google+. That's the two places I put these up. Uh, you can also share the, the uh, web address on Podbean that uh, is in the uh, writings of every episode. So, you know, if you enjoy it, 
Share it with your friends, your family, teachers, enemies, acquaintances, bosses, underlings. Just, just share it. And with that plea, I say thank you. Now, our guest is Alexei Smolensk. Did I say that right? Close enough. Okay. I was introduced to Alexei by a mutual friend and my guest next week, Carl Olson. Now, I've looked at your blog, The Tower of D&D, and I also understand that you wrote uh, a few books, uh, Pete's Garage, which is a musical book, I believe? Yes. And How to Run, an advanced guide to managing role-playing games. So, welcome to the show, Alexi. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, I have a portion of the show that I like to call Five Questions. Why? Because it consists of five questions. It's just something that... You can answer a few questions, and the people listening just get to know you a little bit more. It's nothing nothing real personal, nothing very hard, but are you ready? I am, yeah. All right, number one, your favorite superhero? I'd have to say probably Wonder Woman, yeah. Okay, okay. Much now, with that, I have to, <laughs> with that, I have to ask, did you enjoy the new Wonder Woman movie? No, I did not. No, I thought it was horrible. It's it. There are lots of problems with it that mostly have to do with trying to still shoehorn Wonder Woman into the 1940s that that was from the 1940s into the present day. And they made a lot of bad choices trying to do that. And I was not impressed. See, now I'm not I wasn't a huge comic book fan of Wonder Woman. I'll, I'll be honest there. But the movie just felt like it lacked something, even when I watched it. And I watch a lot of comic book movies from the idea of. I never read the comic books. They're just, I go to be entertained. And Wonder Woman just lacked in a lot of places. And it sounds like I'm not the only one that feels that way. Oh, no. It, it was laughable in parts. Uh, the, the, the whole way that it moved from scene to scene made no sense. The whole thing at the end with Ares made no sense. There were so many opportunities. And you really got the feeling that somebody, that, that Snyder was not able to make the movie, so they pulled somebody else in at the last moment to make it who really didn't know what they were doing. It, okay. it was awful. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so uh, number two, your favorite author. And in this case, I'm going to have to say, besides yourself, yes. who's your favorite author? Leo, uh, Leo Tolstoy. Sorry about that. Yeah, definitely Tolstoy. Okay, fair enough. Favorite musician? Uh, you know, this is such a loaded question. This, I know it is. This is. I, I don't know exactly so how tribal, old you are, right? but for those of us who've got a lot of years of listening to music in, it's almost impossible to actually nail it down. Well, you you ask somebody asks this question and it immediately tags you as to what kind of a person you are, and there's so much wrapped up in music being cool that you have to you have to be somebody who likes Blink 182 and Coldplay, or everybody immediately hates you. Because God, God help you if you ever like anything that doesn't fit into a, a very set amount of people. Like I can say that I like Miles Davis because that's okay. You know, later jazz, that's acceptable. Right, right. But if I say I like Hokey Carmichael, then no, that's not good enough. I'm sorry. It's okay to well, like the hard birds, but you can't like the turtles. You know, it's it's you can like the who, but you can't like the eagles. It's all of this sort of thing. And people want to just slit you in. I don't really have a favorite musician. I'm really more into the actual art works of art. So the okay. actual songs are more important to me than is the there an era? Musician. Is so there an I, era? I love Pink Floyd the Wall. I will give I will give Pink Floyd the Wall as my answer to your question. Okay. I care nothing at all about Roger Waters and the other guy whose name right now I can't even remember. 
I don't care about them. They did this amazing, amazing album. Incredible. But fair enough. I I don't really, I I don't worship the, I don't worship the band. I worship the work. Right. Right. And yeah, I, I listen to such an eclectic amount of music that I don't, pigeonhole people I, i've had people come up to me and i'll be like you know we'll talk music i'll say who's your favorite band and they'll say a name and i'm like who you know and then i'll go out and i'll look at this band and the latest one is a friend of mine said i really like this band epica and i'm like what's epica well here it's this dutch rock band and it's just and they're really good it's got a female lead singer and they are just amazing the problem is they remind me a lot of uh, of um, and of course I just lost the name of it, but there was an American band uh, with a few, with Amy Lee as the lead singer, and I can't think of it right now, but they sound exactly like them. Just ten years later, yeah. you know what I mean? So, all right, so let's go on to question number four. This should be an easy one. What's your favorite color? Uh, probably red. Okay, fair enough. And the final one. This one is what usually trips people up. What is your favorite TV show of all time? Oh, well, I thought about this one a lot. It, it has to be something that's seminal, right? Something that helped identify you as a person. That, that Not necessarily. And, and, I, mean, and I, I hesitate to say it, but it, it has to probably be the original series. I mean, I'm an old guy, right? I, I remember a really long part of my life when Star Trek, the original series, was the only Star Trek. Right, and right. There yeah. was only three seasons of it. So as a young kid, I got to the point where it was on television all the time and you could remember every shot, every scene, every whatever. And we had so many arguments in school grounds about whether or not Star Trek was better than Star Wars and what kind of <laughs> battles would happen if the two of them fought each other and would, would you know, did Star Wars even have a chance against the Star Trek ships and all of those conversations. And oh, yeah. so, so people who really, you know, Star Wars right. is never a series, right? Star Trek was and what it stood for and everything that you believed in. I'm not a Trekkie, but I have always been like Star Trek has always been very, very central. Right. To, to, to how I think a TV show should work. Yeah. So, and I, I really enjoy the original series. I did not watch it in the original run. I'm a little too young for that. But. You know, I have watched it through two or three times, and, you know, the episode with the guys that were half black and half white, these things just stick with you. Yeah. You know, uh, what was his name? Mud. Um, Harry Mud. yeah. Harry Mud. You know, these characters stick with you, and a lot of times in, in TV nowadays, you don't get that. Most characters are throwaway characters, and so I understand where you're coming from, where it's this kind of, this show that just kind of pulls you in and keeps you there. And it's not something that you want to forget, you know. My wife loves Friends. I wish I could forget that series altogether. It's just, <laughs> you know. But, all right, so this is your time now, Alexi. You can talk about anything you want to, except your topic. We'll get to that in a little bit. Except Before... my topic. <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry, what does that mean, except my topic? Oh. So don't, don't bring up my... your topic yet. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that after today in history. Okay. Well, um, let's let's. Uh, I, I took a vow not to talk about Donald Trump. I, I took a vow on my online when he won the election that I wasn't allowed to say anything about Donald Trump, and I wouldn't. And I'm I'm sticking to that vow, so I'm not talking about him now. But yeah, you know, there's there's an urge there. 
There's a really <laughs> strong urge there. <laughs> you, you, you definitely you 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 have my blessing if you want to, because technically we're not online here. We're, you, talked, we're pretty... you talked about conspiracy theory, so and and Bigfoot, of course, is a huge conspiracy theory for a lot of Americans. And I'm 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 a Canadian, right? And we okay. don't see Bigfoot the same way that Americans see Bigfoot. Uh, and it's really strange to me because Washington State is really filled with people and yet Americans can still con con convince themselves that there's a chance that there's this nine foot tall creature moving around inside of Washington state that has not been discovered or met or properly filmed or caught in a trap or something like that. Okay. Canada is huge. Canada is really, really, really big. And there's our, there's, there's, Nobody up here that I know who believes in the Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Nobody. Really? There's just, there, no, no. Everybody I I've talked to about it at any time since maybe the early 1980s. I mean, there was a time when Canadians were willing to buy into it. But now it's just something that Canadians feed Americans because we want your tourist money. Right? Fair so enough. There, are, there are companies that are have been established here in, in Alberta and B.C., that get a lot of money by selling tourists that so you can come up here, you can pay them a bunch of money, they will walk you out into the bushes and they will they will make you believe that you've seen something because they will put a person out there in the woods late at night so that you can't really see it. And right. they'll be in all sorts of levels of costumes and so on and so forth. And they won't make it so overt that anybody can say, well, that was, you know, you faked me out or whatever. They'll make it so subtle that no one can ever nail them down in a legal cause. But ultimately, right. it's 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 all about the tourist in industry. But oh, absolutely. You know, and if we're going to talk about Bigfoot here for a second, I am one of those Americans that I think it's a really cool idea. But I have never seen anything that made me go, oh, that that's that's you know that's Sasquatch, that's Bigfoot because. Let's be realistic. If he's out there, where are the bones of the dead? Where are, you know, all this stuff that should be there if they exist? Yeah. You know, that, that there should be some sort of spore that's out there. There should be markings on trees. I mean, how does this Bigfoot character find his way about? Okay. Right. Um, and it's always a he, right? There are never, there are never women Bigfoot. Nobody ever talks about she. We saw her, right? Right, right. So we assume that if there is a Bigfoot, and they've been around for at least 100 years since the, the legends began, that they're having sex out in the woods. One would so think so, they, yes. They must be chasing each other out in the woods, and you'd think that that would make a lot of noise, you know, two nine-foot creatures chasing each other. Right. Woods. You'd think there would be some sort of sign that somebody would right. come across. You know, and it's one of those things, cryptozoology video. is kind of a... <laughs> A neat idea, but I think it's a wasted idea, and I think a lot of people waste time on things that that aren't there. People want you know? it to be there. Well, they do. They That's do. It's, it's it such good tourism. You know, it's uh. same thing for me. I I do ghost hunting from time to time. Yeah. You know, whether or not you believe in ghosts, you know, it, it's one of those things. It piqued my interest, so I go do it. You know, have I ever? had an encounter happen when I'm in a dark room with 
nobody around me and I'm sitting there freaking out in my own head? Absolutely. Was it a ghost? Maybe, maybe not. But I mean, you know, honestly, it's you do more with your brain causing you to believe things than what's actually there. Yes. So in that way, do I believe in ghosts? I don't know. I'm skeptical leaning to a belief, you know, kind of thing. But I'm skeptical. I have you a know, ghost story. What's that? I have a ghost story. Do you really? Yes, I have. I would love me. to hear yeah. that. I worked in a kitchen once that I worked in a, a lot of kitchens, but I worked in a kitchen once that used to be a funeral home. Okay. And there, that the, most of the people who work there, and it's still true, will talk about Edgar because Edgar makes things happen. Okay. And I remember once I put a very heavy pan up on a very high shelf and I pushed it to the back of the shelf. There's no possible way that pan could have fallen or slipped or slid off the shelf. The pan was dry. I put it up there. I turned around to go back to the dish pit and that pan bounced on the floor immediately afterwards. Interesting. Instantly. Like, wow. The moment I turned my back, that pan was bouncing on the floor. So how that, that pan fell eight feet from a shelf that was three feet deep doesn't make any sense at all. And it could have been Edgar. Everybody at that at that restaurant, it's the Rosen Crown here in Calgary. Everybody at that restaurant has a story about Edgar. Excellent. All right. So I'm going to jump into today in history, and then we'll get to your topic. How's that sound? Sure. All right. So. Today in history, I get all my history facts from history.com slash this day in history. So August 18th, 1991, Soviet hardliners launched coup against Gorbachev. On this day in 1991, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev is placed under house arrest during a coup by high-ranking members of his own government, military, and police forces. Since becoming Secretary of the Communist Party in 1985 and President of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1998, or I'm sorry, in 1988, Gorbachev had pursued comprehensive reforms of the Soviet system, combining restructuring of the economy, including a greater emphasis on free market policies and openness in diplomacy, he greatly improved Soviet relations with Western democracies, particularly the United States. Meanwhile, though within the USSR, Gorbachev play, faced powerful critics, including conservatives, hardline politicians, and military officials who thought he was driving the Soviet Union toward its downfall and making it a second-rate power. On the other side were even more radical reformers, particularly Boris Yeltsin, president of the most powerful socialist republic, Russia, who complained that Gorbachev was, not ju or was just not working fast enough. The August 1991 coup was carried out by the hardline elements within Gorbachev's own administration, as well as the heads of the Soviet Army and the KGB, or secret police. Detained at his vacation villa in the Crimea, he was placed under house arrest and pressured to give his resignation, which he refused to do. Claiming Gorbachev was ill, the coup leaders, headed by former Vice President Gennady Yanayev, declared a state emergency and attempted to take control of the government. Yeltsin and his backers from the Russian parliament then stepped in, calling on the Russian people to strike and protest the coup. When soldiers tried to arrest Yeltsin, they found the way to the parliamentary building blocked by armed and unarmed civilians. Yeltsin himself climbed aboard a tank and spoke through a megaphone, urging the troops not to turn against the people and condemning the coup as a new reign of terror. 
The soldiers backed off, some of them choosing to join the resistance. After thousands took to the streets to demonstrate, the coup collapsed after only three days. Gorbachev was released and flown to Moscow, but his regime had been dealt a deadly blow. Over the next few months, he dissolved the Communist Party, granted independence to the Baltic states, and proposed a looser, more economics-based federation among the remaining republics. In December 1991, Gorbachev resigned. Yeltsin capitalized on his defeat of the coup, emerging from the rubble of the former Soviet Union as the most powerful figure in Moscow and the leader of the newly formed Commonwealth of Independent States. So there you go. A little Russian history. <laughs> now, I remember the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was, uh, I was in high school at the time, um, along with uh, the, the tearing down of the wall in Berlin, uh, which happened a couple years before that when I was in middle school. So I'm really aging myself here, but, you know, that was a big change in the world going from the supposed Cold War, which kids my age really didn't know all that much about, you know, but my, my parents' generation, you know, they did the diving under the desks. They did all that kind of stuff. And we watched it on old film reel kind of chuckling at what our parents did, you know, because everything was starting to loosen up in that portion of the world. Do you remember when these things happened? Do you remember where you were in life? I, I will start by saying that, first of all, I appreciate that you decide to make Russian thing. It's very nice for you to make Russian bit of history for me today, because after all, I am Russian deep inside. So it's very kind of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I like I definitely that. Definitely remember uh, when I was 16, it was 1980. OK, OK. So when I was 16, I remember the Russian tanks rolling into I, I remember them rolling into Afghanistan. And at that time, I was in high school, and I had a, a high school uh, teacher who was very much into politics. He would later become the head of the of the Alberta Teachers Union, so he was very red, very very pinko. And I was pretty close to that myself. I was very much into communism at the time. That might have had something to do with my Russian background. It might have been a response to my Russian family that was very very you know conservative in their outlook. But it was very difficult to, to defend the Russian action on, on any level. But I, even at that time, I was beginning to understand why, like what was happening in, in Afghanistan, the damage that was done to the country and so on. Right. And I bring all this up because, I mean, from, the, from Charlie Wilson's war, you know the movie. Uh, I don't know if you know the movie. Some of, some of your listeners will know the movie. There's, there's an argument made there that Americans supported the Mujahideen by giving them arms, and that led to ultimately all of the, the wall coming down and that there was a direct connection between Moscow pulling out of Afghanistan and Moscow finally having to surrender. But it, it goes back further. Russia was really running out of money, and the American plan in the 1970s and 80s was to do nothing but just make Russia run out of money because they were, they were keeping the arms race going just because if Russia had to keep up with the arms race, Russia didn't have the resources to pay as much money into the, the arms race as America had. So mm -hmm. Russia absolutely was going to go broke doing that. The, the wall coming down was nothing more than the inevitability of Russia running out of money. And everybody knew prior to the wall coming down that it was going to come down. So when it happened in 89, everybody around me, I remember, was surprised by it. How did that happen? I mean, we didn't see it coming. But I didn't. I wasn't surprised by it at all. There have been movements leading up to Gorbachev's decision 
Gorbachev in his speeches definitely made sounds about the fact that that was the direction he was moving in. Uh, he was in Iceland just six months before the wall came down. So there was lots of signs that were going on. And I remember thinking when the wall came down, well, you know, it's about time. Uh, but no, I don't remember where I was when the wall came down. It, it wasn't a big seminal thing to me because okay. at the time I was, I, I don't think I was young enough for it to be a big thing to me. Well, but right. it, for, it was nice for the Cold War to end because we used to we used to be terrified about bombs falling down. Right. Now, I was, let's see, in 89, I would have been 13. So I was just at that age where I was starting to realize there was a world outside of my neighborhood, yeah. you know, kind of thing. And uh, so when, you know, we were in school and when it happened, they they the school put together some sort of a collage of, of sound bites and stuff. You know, we heard Reagan saying, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall and all the little sound bits. And then it came down and we're like, Ronald Reagan is a god, yeah. you know, <laughs> which I grew up with anyway, because my dad, even though he's a very – uh, de he's very democratic uh, in, in his leanings, but he's also a union guy. So he was one of those, you know, those, uh, those, those blue Reaganites, you know? So when I, it's probably the only Republican my father has ever voted for in his entire life, but you know, he was very high on Ronald Reagan. So I came out of that and then school showed us that. And I was just like, this Ronald Reagan is really cool. But now as an older person, you know, and I'm in my forties now, I look back at Reagan and I go, you know, he's just like any other president. He did some good stuff and he did some really shitty stuff. It's just the way life is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I enjoy the history lesson. As everybody that listens here knows, I am a, I'm a huge history buff. Um, I enjoy uh, the history, some of the history of the of Imperial Russia, you know, before the before the uh, the coup and the uh, the taking down of the, the czars. Yeah. Um, you know, not that that was any better history than that, but that's just what kind of you know always stokes my imagination is that czarist time in Russia. If if you go back to the 19th century and you look at the way that the czars were treating people, and that the, the unbelievable amount of abuse, not just the czars, but the the people underneath the czars, the civil service underneath the czars. And the way that that they were treating the people in the in the four or five decades leading up to the, the revolution under Alexander II and so on, right? You can really see. If you, are you familiar with the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn? No, I'm not. It, it's really eye opening because you can really see how the Russia after the revolution continued to abuse the people in the same way that the 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 former people did, the, the, the former regimes under the czars did. And because once you create a, a, an atmosphere of horror and abuse and terror, then you just train the next generation to follow through on that pattern. And, and Russia is still in that. Russia, yeah. Russia is still trapped in that pattern of abuse and fear and torture. And all the Russians are crazy anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think it's time that we, we, we jump into your topic for tonight. So what is it you're bringing to the table? What is it that you want to talk about tonight? Well, it, about three months ago, you had Carl Olson on your show. I did. And he brought up a, a subject. He was talking about backstories and about the DM being a player. 
And you made the argument that the DM is a player as well. And he said, no, he's not. And you said, yes, he is. And then the conversation thankfully got onto something else because you were both going just, no, he isn't. Yes, he is. No, he isn't. Yes, he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I so wanted to be involved in that conversation at that time. And so I'd like to talk about the DM being a player. Okay. Uh, now, as I remember, you were talking about the backstory of the character that you were running and how much you enjoyed the backstory and making the backstory and the creation. Yeah, yeah. half of gaming, half of role-playing to me is creating the character. My, the groups I play with, they always go, oh, you're such a, you're such a character builder <clears throat> because I want to do the background. You know, I don't plan my, I don't plan my characters out five, ten, you know, levels out because the story might tell me something different. You know, I use the story and I, and if I start out as, let's say a rogue and I go by the, by the third level, I'm like, I've never used, uh, you know, this, 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 or this skill. Why am I still a rogue? You know, they could really use another guy that can use a sword. So then I might multi-class or, you know, something like that. It's just, I like the story to tell me where my characters go. And I don't want the story to conform to my player, to my character, because then I feel like, the control I have over the story that somebody's telling me is too much because there's, there's a balance between six guys sitting around a table telling a story, but there has to be that one guy, the DM that has to take the story and still keep the internal story solid and make sense. Okay. Well, you know, I've been running D and D since, since 1980. Okay. Okay, so that's 37 years, and I've been playing it since 1979. And I don't worry about the story. A story is something that's happened already. It isn't something that's going to happen. As a DM, I can't know what's going to happen. Because I can't necessarily, I don't run a, a railroaded campaign, so I can't necessarily predict what my players are going to do. I can try to predict and I can organize things so that they want to move towards uh, a carrot that I put in front of them to try to get them to go there. But I can't guarantee they will go for the carrot. And I certainly can't guarantee they'll go for the carrot in the way that I might expect. Now, I've done this a lot. So I have a lot of pattern recognition with, with parties. So I have some idea of what a party's likely to do just because of what other parties have done before them. Uh-huh. But I have to tell you that the backstory of the character in no way whatsoever helps me as a DM. Really? It does nothing for my game. You don't <laughs> ever take... So if you had, let's say I played in a campaign of yours and I said, and, and I'd say, Alexi, here you go. Here's my backstory. It's a page and a half or whatever it is. I've, right. I've written backstories from a paragraph to... I'm almost, I almost feel too nerdy to say this, but I, I've written a 10-page backstory. It just depends sure. on what the character is in my head. But I hand you, let's say, this page-and-a-half backstory, and I give you something like family members or somebody that, uh, you know, in my past that you could use, you could twist and use in the story. And that's the way I like to write backgrounds. Is I give the DM something to use at times when the story may go slow or, or things like that. And I do that as a DM. If my characters write backstory, I don't require it, but if they do, I will I will weave that into the story. So, sure. but you wouldn't use that at all. Or well, I, I might potentially pull 
something out of your backstory and put it into into my campaign. But my basic purpose of my campaign is to make you nervous. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to give you stress. I want to give you a sense of not being sure what's going to happen next. So if you adhere too much to your backstory, then your backstory becomes something that you control. And if I adhere to your backstory, then it is a way of you negotiating control out of me because you can say to me, oh, there's this, the character that I imagined that is in my backstory would never behave that way. So you can't run that character in that way because he would never behave that way. The girlfriend spurned me and that's why I'm out adventuring. And if you bring this girlfriend back and she apologizes to me and says, you know, she's sorry and she wants to get back together with me, then I no longer have a reason to be out on my campaign. So don't change the girl that way because it ruins my backstory. That's a problem I have with people who want backstories is they want those backstories to be chiseled in stone. So that all the characters and all the people in their backstories can't be modified. Okay. I can't do that. I need a world that, that's flexible. I, I get what you're saying. And that, you know, the way you're looking at it, that can be a problem. However, that's, when I write a backstory, that's not what I'm looking for. You know what? In fact, I have a, I have a, I have a perfect example of that. I was playing under um, a, a buddy of mine named Brett. And he was running a game out of a world that he created called Avalon. Yeah, that's the name of the city anyway. And I had written this backstory about, you know, how the girlfriend had jilted me, blah, blah, blah. So he didn't bring that girlfriend back, but he threw a woman at me. And my character, even though he'd said, you know, I'm never going to do it. I'm like, the way the game played out, and maybe this is just because of the way I play, is I literally had that character written out because she was like, I want you to I want you to run away with me. My father's a jerk and I'm going to steal money from him and we can go live out in the country. And I'm like, done. And I ended up making a new character because he threw that at me and my character went, you know, this makes sense. So maybe it's just the way maybe I'm a maybe I'm a unique player. I don't think I am because a lot of the guys I game with play the same way. Uh, but how, does, but, how does the story that you just told me work for me as a DM? How does it I mean, work? I can create that sort of adventure or that sort of sequence, but that doesn't work for me as a DM. Here, let me try to make it, let me, let me try to put it a different way. Okay. You, Chad, join the army. Okay. And we ship you off to, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, somewhere different if you like, doesn't matter. Okay. Yep. And I am now your sergeant telling you what to do because you're in the army. Do I care about your backstory? You no. have an actual real life that you have experienced up until the time that you've joined the army. Do I care? Am most I gonna, likely, am most I gonna, likely not. Am I going to call your family up to make sure that when I give you orders, I'm doing it in the format of your, of your backstory? No. No. And as a DM, if I'm creating an adventure for you, if I'm creating, well, more than that, I'm creating a setting for you to move inside, then... I can pile enough information onto that setting that your backstory becomes irrelevant. And as long as I'm piling the information into the setting and not you, then you're not in control. And I'm in a much, much stronger position of being able to influence you to make you twist in the wind as you try to decide between the two variables of we're all going to die. And, oh, wait a minute, there is a small chance for success if we try this. So you're going to want to try to get between those two things. And that's where I want you to be. 
I don't want you thinking about, oh, I like this girl once upon a time or my family treated me this way. That's all nice and fun and it makes a fairly decent movie on occasion. But I want more than that. I want something that's going to snap. I want something that's going to make you panic at the table. I want something that when you pick up the die to throw to see if you hit, the, the, the die roll is everything at that moment. So that you are scared to death that the die roll will roll wrong. And I can't do that if I'm trapped in your backstory as an attempt to run a much bigger world that, I'm put, that I've put together. Okay, I, and I, I understand that, and honestly, now I just kind of want to play a game with you. <laughs> Where I'm going to be like, I want you to feel right. I, I don't even, I don't even want to write a backstory. Let's just get in here and see what we can do. Well, let's talk about a different kind of backstory. Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about a backstory that that is so strong it causes flame wars on the internet. Right. Took take take somebody like Batman's backstory. There's almost no backstory. That's true. Christopher Nolan tried to put things together, but all he could really do was to re-emphasize the existing backstory. And we all know the backstory. It all happened in one page on an, on the original Batman content, right? Right. That you know, my parents are dead. I I I promise I'm going to fight evil for the rest of my life. Um, I fall in a cave full of bats. <laughs> a bat flies through the window. I know I'll be a bat, right? This is this is what everybody knows from the original story, and any change from that rock solid backstory is considered absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, nobody, nobody wants a complicated backstory. They want a backstory that is so rigid and in stone that emphasizes the idea to never get over anything, right? Right. And so you want your characters to have a backstory that builds as the story, as the game goes on. We play for a couple of months and your backstory becomes, oh, remember when I almost died when we fought the ogre and you guys jumped in and saved me at the last moment? That becomes your backstory. Right. No, right? I get that. And and I don't think backstories should be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? They, they shouldn't be set in stone. I think they just add a little flavor that a DM can reach into now and then just to, you know, uh, pick up a space in the game where it might be lagging. I, I completely agree with that. I think that the backstory developed over a period of time as a response to bad DMing. Quite possibly. I, I've, I've, I've had a lot of bad DMs, you know, and, and you do get to a point where you feel that if the DM is not going to get this thing moving, then you'll get this thing moving. Yeah. You know, and, I, and, and, I've been DMing uh, since about 90, 1995 or so. I started playing in 1994 because I grew up with a mother who thought that if I touched anything role-playing, I'd go to hell. So <laughs> it was forbidden in my house. So the first thing I did when I went off to college was somebody goes, hey, you ever role-play before? And I went, no. They're like, you want to? And I'm like, yes. And, you know, and it, it's been an obsession since. And... Uh, you know, so I, I got a later start than a lot of the people I play with. I played as a character completely for about a year. And after a year, some of the DMs I had, I'm like, I can tell a better story. You know, yeah. I, I tried telling stories out of the little books, the modules. It just doesn't work for me. They're, to me, those are too rigid. I want a world that flows. So over I the years... Over the years, I've created two or three worlds that I keep going back to. 
They're not very meshed out because every time I run a game, I might use the same town names, I might use the same uh, characters, but the world actually create, I create the world around the players and what they're trying to accomplish. So I don't sit down like some people and I don't write up this big long history of the kings. You know, I don't write down the history of the mayors in this town they're going to be in. Because that stuff really doesn't matter. If my players go to me, uh, well, who's the mayor? Joe Blow. It doesn't matter, you know. I can make up a name on the spot. So I've always enjoyed doing things that way. I mean, occasionally I'll run from a module and it just feels real constricting. So I don't know how you feel about that kind of DMing. Oh, I hate modules. I hate modules. I hate the whole concept of modules. I hate the fact that modules came into the game very early on. I hate the fact that modules are an invention of the original manufacturers of the game to try to control players, to make them to make them uh, go back over and over and over to the company in order to build their game. I hate the fact that there's a company that exists. I hate the fact that the company hasn't died and gone to the winds. If there was no company to support an idea of what Dungeons and Dragons is, then this game would be so much healthier and so much better. But there's a company that keeps coming back to the board and saying, oh no, it's this, oh no, it's this, oh no, it's this. And there's so many young people who have no idea that Mike Merles is a complete moron or that Christopher Perkins is the worst dungeon master that has ever been filmed on camera. They just don't know. They, they have nothing to compare it with because they all live in tiny bubbles in small towns all over Canada and America and Britain and the rest of the world. And they just don't know because all they have for examples to what a good DM is, is their tiny little environment. I've only met 10 or 15 DMs in my entire life, and I have no idea what a good DM is. And so I go and I look online, and I see somebody who's sanctioned by the company that has all this ultimate power to say that this is how DMing should be. And there's so many people who just don't know how to look at that and go, this is garbage. And so they just, they just try to do it, and then it doesn't work. And all their players think, you're an idiot. Why are you talking like that? Why are you saying those things? Why are you trying to make me do this? Or I don't want to do that. I want to go do this other. Oh, no, no, no. You can't do that other thing. You must do what I tell you to do. And on yeah. and on. And the game is broken because there's a company. The railroad the, the railroad DM is probably, in, in my opinion, the only place for a railroad DM, and it's only because of time limits, is at a convention. Yeah. When, you know, you got four hours and you got to get them through whatever you're trying to get them through. Then I can see a little railroading as a DM. But normally a railroading DM, I hate it. But the company but, loves know, it. The company, oh, well, loves absolutely. It. the company wants you to railroad your players. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's the worst DM I ever had. And I won't say his name because I, I won't. But. We were playing a game and he was running out of a module, which is which is fine. I you know, I've seen some DMs that can run out of a module and make it feel Better. like a fun game. <laughs> but there are some people that try to run out of and we were we were in a dungeon crawl and he, you know, we're going into these different uh rooms and stuff, right? And we, we step into one room and you know, it's like whatever's in there, there's an, a small armory or whatever, and another one's got some treasure in it. We get to another room and he goes, there's nothing in this room. We're like, that's really odd. The door was locked. You know, why would they lock an empty room? 
so anyway, we move on and stuff. And after we finished that night, we came across like five empty rooms and they were all locked. And I said to him, I said, what's with the locked empty rooms? And he's like, I don't know. That's what it said. I'm like, really? And he pulls out the, he pulls out the module and he opens it up and it's like, and what it said was that the DM could put whatever they wanted in here. So, but instead of actually thinking up something to put in there, whether it's creatures or whatever, he's just like, it's empty. Well, sure. Here, I'll, I'll give you a little lesson in publishing. You are publishing a 64-page book, and you have to fill that 64-page book with print. And you don't have enough print to fill 64 pages. No problem. You put in an ad. You put in an extra ad. You put in an extra ad for an ad. You put in extra stuff. And, and the problem is you have to lay out each page individually so that it fills a whole page. That's no right. problem. We need four lines for page number 62. I've done, I've done unbelievable amounts of publishing. You need to have those four lines. Oh, that's no problem for a, for, for a module. We can fill those four lines. We will simply put door locked. You know, the DM at this point should make up their best mind. Uh, does that fill four lines? Okay, it does. Put up their best mind to, to decide whatever that they want to do or whatever they want to put in because that actually makes it the four lines. There, we're done. Move right. on and publish. And that's what happens. It's horrible. And, and, you know, that's kind of sad when you look at it. This person that has this person that has this idea of this module that they think is worth putting in a module and, and selling the people at. 15, 20, 25 dollars a pop, and they don't have enough imagination to go, okay, we need four lines. I'm gonna take an extra five minutes and actually think of something that they put sit in around there. their boardrooms and they think I have enough imagination to convince people to spend $25 for this module. That's what they think. That's it. That's their imagination. Hey, did we sell it? Yeah, we did. Then we're done. That's yeah. Then we're done. yeah. It's now, you brought up it's on sorry, we should come back to the topic. You brought up the point that the DM is a player. Is the DM a player? Yes. I say yes. Okay, tell me why. Because who plays, quote unquote, plays all the other characters? I, I, as a DM, I play all the villains. I play all the NPCs. I play, I, I literally play the world around you. I tell you if it's raining. I tell you if it's sunny. I tell you if it's summer. I tell you if it's winter. I play all those parts. Right. To me, a game like this, it isn't me versus the players. It's the players versus a concept, an idea, a world in which they they are living. I mean, when we get down to it, every character has a life if, within this Agreed. world. But let me... So... Sorry. For me, as a DM, I am a player because I flesh out all those characters and all those creatures and the world around the player without me as a player the world is pretty damn boring okay, well i think that there's a there's a disconnect that has developed over the last couple of decades about about role-playing games and i think that this speaks to some of that disconnect because the question becomes is a role-playing game a game which is where a game in which role playing is what you do, or is a role playing game a game in which role playing is a part of that game so that it distinguishes that game from other games? Is the game about role playing? Because I think it's to the me, game. 
and not about role play. Okay. This is kind of the this was kind of the thing Carl was trying to get me to understand. And maybe you'll have a better chance at it because he did not he did not come across in a way that made me change my mind so i will give it a shot all right all right as a player in in this case we'll we'll, we'll, you know sticking to the the rpg definition of player not dm right as a player you you take risks which ultimately give you some kind of an accumulation you accumulate power, you accumulate wealth, you accumulate extra toys, you accumulate opportunities, you accumulate something. As a DM, if I am playing a game, where is my accumulation? What is my payoff for playing a game? Character sheets that say dead on them. <laughs> I don't play for that. I'm not interested in, I will kill players, I will. Exactly, I, I, I'm the same way. Goal. I don't have any goal that says I'm trying to kill the player. What I'm trying to do is no, make it possible goal, for the player to die. I don't actually want to kill the player. My goal as a DM is to create a fun, I didn't ask you your goal. exciting environment. I didn't ask you your goal. I asked, what's your payoff? What is the thing? Everybody at, everybody at the table having well, fun. Have that's my that, payoff. No matter what you do, you, we can all drink beers and everybody at the table will have fun. We can go down to the bar while we'll have fun. We don't have to play a game for that. There's lots of things we can do that will produce fun. So... What is your payoff as a DM that that is a risk that you are taking that compensates that risk? Where's the risk that you're taking? Because a game well, is made out of taking a risk and getting a payoff. That's the definition of a game. So where's your risk and where's your payoff? My Okay, I, I've got an answer for this. My risk is that if I don't do a good job as a DM, that... Players aren't coming back next week or next month. And my payoff is when they come back and their asses are back in the Excellent. seat. Now, now we're now we're we're talking on the same wavelength. Good. I do believe the DM is a player, but not because the DM is playing characters. I do exactly what you just talked about. I do play every other character that is in the world. But I don't care about any of those characters from the point of view of the way that the players care about their characters. If the, the old man that I invent in a scene dies, I don't care if he'll nothing. He's just there as a foil to get the characters to believe or not believe something. All of the characters mm-hmm. that I'm playing, I'm not invested in. They're like the butler that comes on on stage to make the plot move along. They're not the character that the story is about. The characters that the story is about is, are the player characters. But I am playing a game. I'm playing a game where I have a world which is a fixed, rigid system that has to has to allow the players inside that rigid system to be able to oscillate in some manner so that they feel they have a certain amount of control. And it's a very complicated game to give them that sense of control without becoming losing my sense of rigidity. So I have to play that game. I have to stay a step ahead of them. I have to answer all their questions as soon as they ask them. I have to have good answers. The answers have to make sense or else they're going to do what you just said. They're going to stop coming. So if I'm not bang, 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 bang on the answers and I'm not fast, 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 I'm making something happen and I'm not making everything exciting as we're moving along, then I'm losing my game. So my risk is to play at all. Right. As soon as everybody sits down, I'm risking. 
but that's a different game than what the players are playing. It's a totally different game. And if okay. you sit down thinking I, I'm playing what the players are playing, then you, you're nowhere. Right. No, and what you said makes perfect sense. And I think that's what Caro was trying to get at the last time. But he didn't get me there. The way you explained it is you're right. The DM is playing a completely yeah. different game. And I, I will agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and, and you're right. If you sit here and like, oh, geez, I don't you know. I, first thing I say whenever I sit down with a group for the first time, it can be the same group I've played with for, you know, 15 years. When we start a new campaign, the first thing I say is I play rules light because I want the story to take focus, not the rules of the game. And they all know that, you know, they've all played with me. They know that's how that right. works. And, you know, and I might put some other limitations. Like if we have a kid at the table that we normally don't, you know, guys, watch your language. Because I know my group can get pretty vocal and pretty foul mouthed, you know, when we're sitting around the table. You know, but other than that, I don't do a whole lot of of rules. Um, you know, I have a group that I play Call of Cthulhu with from time to time. Completely different game than D&D. But, you know, we'll say, I'll say I'm setting it in the 20s. And we have one guy that really doesn't like the parlance of the 20s. He doesn't want characters running around using the N-word or, you know, de degrading women and that kind of stuff. So we play to that to a certain sure. degree, you know. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. But it's rules that are set down before we actually start playing. So I play with a lot um, of rules, but, right? the number of rules that a person plays with depends on how many they can keep in their head at a given time and how hard they're going to play to get those rules in their head. Right. Cause the more rules you play with, the more you have to remember as a DM that that rule applies. When mm -hmm. I started playing, obviously I didn't play with very many rules, just like everybody else. And as I added rules to the game over time, I steadily built up, uh, a pattern of how to handle new rules. And now I'm making rules all the time because I think that rules help clarify what the player feels the player is doing. If the player can identify where they are or what they can do, then they have more control over what they can do. And I, I think that rules have to be built in a sense of not the kind of rules that came out in 3.5 where everything is a die roll because it's really hard to know or play within a framework that is all die rolls. Player mm. has to be able to know, I can do this, or I can't do that. And as long as those are the definition of the rules, then the player can, you can add as many rules as you want, because the rules just become walls in a video game. Mm -hmm. Now, do you believe, do you believe there's anything that, is there anything a character could say, a player as a character could say to you that says, I want to try this. Are you going to, is there anything where you're just going to go, no, can't do that. No. Why? Because I've always, and I agree with you. I've always been to the, 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 um, you know, I've had DMS go, Oh, you can't do that. That's not possible. Well, maybe not, but we're not in the real Magic world exists. either. Everything is possible. Right. And if, if right. I'm playing a kind of a traveler or riffs campaign or something like that, then technology exists. Everything's possible. Right. Right. And if the DM doesn't do it or doesn't want it, it's mostly because he's just too tired, right? Is it, he just, he knows that's going to be a big hassle. 
He knows that if he gives the player that extra power or that extra ability or the thing that the player wants to be able to do, he knows that's going to be a, a hassle in the future, that that's going to make it really difficult to build the kind of adventures I'm building now after the player gets this superpower. So I want this player mm-hmm. to have the superpower because it's going to break my game. And it's going to break my game because my game is very fragile and has to be played according to this very, very small set of circumstances because I don't know how to play a game that doesn't fit into this very fragile mode. Right. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of pushback to anything a player wants to do that's that that's different or odd or strange or difficult. And and I think that that's just completely wrong because as a player, I want to do anything that comes to mind. I don't think this Mm -hmm. game is necessarily about living out your fantasies. But I do think that there should be a pathway that gets you from what you can do to what you want to do. That, that doesn't mean that pathway is easy. You could come and play in my world. Right. You want to do something really insane. I want to be a god someday. Sure, you can be a god someday. But I got to tell you, the pathway between where you are right now and God, you, we're going to be playing 10 years from now. Because that pathway is a really big, long pathway. So, <laughs> right. And your risk of death along that pathway would be very high. I would Eventually. Think. Yes. You know, I mean, when you start to get up into the point where you're going to be fighting gods, then there's going to be a lot of random things happening very quickly. I mean, this is the, the difficult. When, when I see people playing 15th, 16th, 17th level games in Dungeons and Dragons and everybody is behaving like an orc, it's like these guys have teleport. You know, they can teleport at will. They can gate other creatures in at will. They can do all this other stuff at will. Why are they fighting like orcs? Why are they even in the room with you? Why are they even on the battlefield with you? They should be in some other plane of existence fighting you. It's just crazy that you think that they're going to come down and fight you toe-to-toe like, uh, God, some horrible Hollywood thing where both both the good guy and the bad guy throw down their weapons and go at it with fists, like, you know, this awful, yeah, horrible, right. horrible yeah. Hollywood trope. And everybody wants to play that. Like, oh, I want to I want to fight, you know, I, I want to fight the Demi-Corgon, but, you know, we both throw down our weapons and promise not to use magic and go at it with fists. That's so cool. And it's just, what? What? You didn't fight enough orcs? Fine. You're first level. Go back and fight orcs again. Right? You know? Right. <laughs> right. You know you know, honestly, in a situation like that, if I ever had a character that got that high level, which never happens, uh, most of our campaigns, we get up to about that 7th, 8th level, ninth level, and people start getting the itchy. They want to go back and start over because the game is more of a challenge. I think that that's what happens is the DM doesn't know how to make it a challenge at 7th or 8th or ninth level. They don't know how to make it scary enough. That they don't know how to, to, to take that period and play the game at that level. So they want to go back to where the rules are simple and there's very little that the players can do. And the players want to go back there too because the game felt better then. But I promise right. you, I can play you at 10. No problem. We can get rocking and, and you will not feel but, that the game is coming across easy. Let me tell you, you just won't feel it. Right. You, you know, honestly, as, as a player, if I was... 15, 16, 17th level, and he's like, let's throw it out. I'd be like, sure. And then I'd turn around and chop him down because that's well, That's what we all think when we see that horrible Hollywood trope, right? <laughs> Why don't yeah, you it's just like, shoot him? You know, it's it goes back to the um, the uh, indie, indie um, uh, now I can't think of it, the, 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 the indie, you know, with the whip, yeah, the guy with the whip, Jones, Indiana yeah. Jones. And the one in the one scene where the guy comes running up on him and he just like pulls out his gun and he's like, bam. 
you know, could he have fought the guy hand to hand? Sure, but why? Well, that, always, that scene always bothered me because why did the guy step out from the crowd and swing his sword around for five minutes? Why didn't he just step out of the crowd and kill Andy? Like, why did he show Yeah, why did you just slip it there? between the ribs and be People done with it? People are trying to kill you don't usually pause 20 feet away and whip their sword around like, look how cool I am. That's not But that's another Hollywood trope. You saw it, you saw it in a bunch of the Batman movies, <laughs> um, especially the ones from the 90s. You know, the guy would jump out with the with the blades and he'd do his whole whipping stuff around and then Batman would kick him in the head. You know, it's like you could have stabbed Batman six times by now if you'd have just done your job. Yeah, I like action films like Haywire. Do you know Haywire? Well, it, I, don't. I like action films where everybody behaves like they're actually trying to kill each other. You know, that there's no, there's yeah, no time for that's cool what makes or sense. style or, or, you know, a shot where this person looks really great when they're doing it. It's just, we're trying to kill each other and I'm going to come at you blind and you'll never see it coming. That's, that's what I, that's what I want to see. The kind of movie. Yeah. That's kind of why I like some, some of the Tarantino movies, you know, like, uh, especially Reservoir Dogs. Talk about a gritty film where nobody's trying to be fancy. They're just cutting people's ears off and lighting them on fire. Much, much know, better it's... other than what he's doing right now. You know, there was a film from 82 called uh, called Eating Raul, which is a bizarre film about two people who decide to pose as as kink people so that they can murder people and sell their sell their flesh in order to be able to someday buy their restaurant. It's it's funny. It's okay, bizarre. Okay. It's by the guy who made Death Race 2000 back in the 70s. It's absolutely hilarious. But there's a moment where the girl is pretending to be a submissive and there's this guy who's pretending to be a Nazi and he just stands in front of her and he talks and he talks and he talks and he talks until finally her husband hit, comes up behind her and hit, behind him and hits, hits him with a frying pan. And she says, oh, God, what a nightmare. I thought he'd never stop talking. To me, that's a Quentin Tarantino film. <laughs> it's like, just something, yeah. something, can something happen here? Because, my God. Will they ever stop talking? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Tarantino does does lapse into that, you know, where the bad guy monologues, and it's like, who would really do that? <laughs> you know, I have never, as a DM, had my bad guy sit there and monologue. No, me either. <laughs> you could be casting shell. Yeah. I mean, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's just it it just blows my mind, and you see that a lot actually in some of these some of these modules that are put out, where you get this big brick of you know something you're supposed to read to the players, and it's your bad guy monologuing. <laughs> I've never seen that, but I can see that I can see going to that place because I don't think most. I mean, we were talking about story. I don't think most people can really put together a good story, and if they could, they would be writing books if they were really able to put together a good solid meaningful story the kind of thing that would really grab us and pull us out of the out of their chair they would be writing actual stories but i think most dms want to write stories but they don't know the first thing about it and god forbid that they should ever read real books right because <laughs> they right. go off and they read you know, a bunch of pulp novels that are basically writers who couldn't write real stories who found a way to at least sell something right 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 mm -hmm. Now, I don't know, I guess I always like to ask this of other DMs. How do you go about forming a story for a game? Because I, I'm, I talked about this with Carl. I use what I, what I call the McDonald's theory of writing a story. So I have a start point and I have an end point, 
and then I have things that need to happen within the story. And, you know, so there has this arch. There's, you start here, you you build, and you get to the second point. And then you build, and you get to the third point. And you build, and you get to the fourth point. And I'm not sure Carl understood me, because if the group, if if the action builds, and the group's not there to see it, it still happens. It's not like the world stops because my group of adventurers aren't there. They just have to now come up with a different way to deal with said issue. Yeah. But what is the issue, right? I mean, that's the question right. you're asking. What is the issue? And there's, there's, there's fundamental truths about how to write stories that have been around for a long time. And if you want to get down to the very, the very root of it, I mean, you take somebody like journalists who have to write a story every single day. There's no time to think about mm-hmm. the story. They get out, they, they, they do a couple of quick interviews on the phone, and then they sit down and they write the story. And there's certain rules about what they have to do to make that story work. And the first rule is that you have to put you, Chad, in a place where there's something you want. So I want to put a carrot in front of you that you have to go towards because that will start you in the direction of moving towards that thing. The next thing I want to do is I want to put a tiger behind you so that as you are climbing said tree to get said, to get said, said, you know, thing that you want at the top of the tree, there's a tiger climbing up the tree behind you that you have to stay ahead of in order to be to feel that you're you're going to survive right so there's always the thing in front of you and there's always the thing behind you when you write a news story say i'm writing something about apple and i want to make that happen i want to you know i want to talk about the apple corporation coming out with the iphone well then what i want to do is i want to say apple is moving towards an iphone that will do all these things there's the goal for apple and then i want to say that apple is really worried because android is going to kick its ass in the next quarter so there's the tiger behind apple and if you look at news stories in the paper you will see this pattern repeated over and over and over and over the whole thing about about any news stories you want to put something in front that they're going for and you want to put something in hot behind that's going to kill them so if you want to make a good story, you have to start with those two, those two fundamentals. And then everything else is how complicated you can make those two fundamentals. How hard is it to get to the apple and, or to the carrot? And how, how complicated is the tiger? Can you see the tiger? Can you hear the tiger? Is the tiger restless? Is the tiger willing to talk to you? All of those possibilities that you can come up with in your mind to make those elements more and more complex is what makes the story more fulfilling. I mean, you look at Star Wars. There's the whole thing. Luke is going to help to help Princess Leia. There's the there's the the the, the carrot in front of him, and they're looking for the two droids that are with Luke. There's the tiger coming up behind Luke. And the two things are, are moving in a pattern that makes the story happen and drives it from place to place. That's what you need to do when you're making an adventure. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things. I've been asked the question, are you a good DM? I can't answer that question. I always say that. I, it's not my. It's not a job I get yeah. to make, you know. Um, am I a good DM? Well, people keep coming back. Uh, people ask me to run stuff for them. So based on that, am I a good DM? Well, let me ask you a question. That's a yeah. fairly decent question, okay? Let's suppose that you're trying to make a chair, okay? You're a, you're a yep. wood craftsman and you're making a chair. And I, I'm going to ask okay. you the question, what are you doing right when you make the chair? 
you can identify that. All that the, the legs look the same. They're all the same height. The, the, the chair is comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm saving money when I use this kind of wood or this kind of wood is more, you know, you, you can identify all of those right. things. This is what I'm doing right. Now, as a DM, what are you doing right? People are coming back. Yeah, that's not really <laughs> something you can build on, is it? You can't really point at that and say, no. there, I did that right. Oh, wait, I don't know why they're coming back. All right. I mean, obviously, the people playing think I tell a decent story. I tell a story that they have fun being a part of. Um, I like to think I tell engaging stories, stories that make people think. I'm very much into uh, games, and it doesn't matter what system I played in, because I play a lot of different systems, but very much into investigative stories where there's going to be a lot more role-playing than there is going to be fighting. So you, you can you know, see their eyes when you tell a good story. And right. You, and Absolutely. you get that feeling, oh, this is a good story, right? So I'm, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm I've, doing I've, right I've, now. I'm doing really good right now. And at right. the end of the night. Because I'll be honest, <laughs> there there are stories that I've told that are just Yeah, you garbage. can feel that too, right? This, oh, oh, yeah. this, one, oh yeah. this one's dying. Like this one is so dying. Nobody is, you know. Nobody's even looking at me right now, right? So, yeah, when they when they glaze and the phones come up, you're like, okay, time to change. <laughs> it's really easy to see when you're doing something wrong. There's no question about that. Yes. But at the end of the night, when when the game is really good, do you know why you told a good story that night and not some other night? No. Yeah, and see that is a real issue because in this particular in this particular uh, and I don't want to call it a hobby, but in this particular practice. It is really, really hard to identify when you're doing something right. And when you're doing something right is what it's all about. Because if you know you've done something right, you can do it again. If you're playing hockey and you make this move and you turn there and then you take the shot and you hit the goal, uh, Canadian reference, right? If you do that, <laughs> if you do that, hey, I know Wayne Gretzky. you can remember that in your head and you can you can remember how to do it again. And and that's what people have to be able to understand is that they need to be able to be conscious of when they're doing well, conscious enough that they can repeat that experience again. And they're not they're not it's not that they can't do that. It's that they're not realizing that they have to step out of themselves at the moment when they're doing well and try to remember what this experience was. You know, when you come back to the, the when you the hockey reference again, right? You come back to the coach. The coach will tell you that was good. You did this and you did that. And that was a good thing. But there's nobody at your gaming table who can do that for you. You inherently don't trust the players. You don't know whether or not they really liked it or if they're just saying they liked it because the players don't want you to lose heart and stop playing. Right. right so right. you really can't trust the players. And I think there's probably some argument to be made for another DM playing in your game or just watching your game and 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 being able to say afterwards, this is what you're doing right. This is what I wish I was doing. When you did this thing here, that was so cool. I wish I could do that when I was playing a game. But it's impossible. That's actually, you know, something I've never thought of because I, I do have other DMs that play in my games. So, 
you know, just to have a, just to have a, a, a talk fest afterwards and just say, Hey, what, what do you guys like? What don't you like? What, you know, what works, what doesn't work? Why not ask them what That's they'd like a, to see working? You know, why not ask, what would you like yeah. to do next? Cause even if they, even if they outline the whole campaign that they wanted to do next, that wouldn't necessarily mean it wouldn't be a hard campaign or that they'd know they'd win it. Right. You right. could, you could let them but, write the next module and then run them through it. And they still wouldn't know if they'd win. Right. No, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's one of our big, <laughs> our, our groups, the groups I play with, that's always the thing is how do you win D and D? Well, you don't, you don't win per se. You may win a battle. You may win the war, but you don't really win because then there's something else beyond that, that your character goes to. Winning you know? is overrated. Absolutely. <laughs> it's an American Sometimes thing, I have right? as much Winning fun. Not, you know, <laughs> this is a pastime. This yeah. is something that, I mean, take another game where you win all the time. Take chess, right? And I, I mean, I played chess with people where we played 30, 40 games in an afternoon. Winning doesn't mean that much. You're not really playing to win chess. You're playing to right. get over that moment when you don't know what to do with your pieces and you're staring at the board and you're trying to... You're, problem solved, right? So D&D is great. It's gotten rid of all the winning part. All the winning mm -hmm. part's just an annoyance. It just means we have to start again, right? This is right. so much better without all this winning that we can just keep going and going and problem solving and enjoying this experience. It's, it's like playing uh, crossword puzzles that you never run out of crossword puzzle or, or anything that has a, a anything that has a necessary ending. You've stopped playing hockey because you get tired and the game ends, you know, the periods end. But what if you just wanted, what if you didn't get tired and you just wanted to keep playing hockey, right? What if, what if there was no rule that said you had to win at a particular game, but you could just keep playing it at a higher and a higher and a higher level till it got more and more complicated and more and more complex. And it just, it really pushed you to the end. Well, you know, it could be called role playing or something like that. <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> all right i i think we're gonna wrap it up here but i want to give you a chance here to give what's what's one piece of advice that you would give to either players or dms uh when it, when it comes to playing this game this this thing we call D D or role get rid of the dm screen never, never use one get rid of it roll all your dice right out in front of the players and tell them what the roles are going to be so that they can tell whether or not you're hitting or not hitting or they live or they don't live. And before you throw the dice, oh, yeah. pause so that they have a moment to think about the dice hitting the table before it does. Never fudge. You don't have to fudge. And it doesn't matter if they die. It doesn't matter. Because if you do everything out there in front of them where they see that die hit that table and you say to them, I'm sorry, if I roll a 20, you're dead. There's nothing I can do about it. If I roll a 20, you're dead. And you roll a 20, they won't like being dead, but they won't blame you. You were fair. Right. You were fair. No. You gave them a chance I, to live. It was out there in the open. You were completely up on, and yeah. on, on the level. They have nothing to complain about if they die. And, and I totally agree with you. I have not used a, a DM screen since second edition. When I was a new DM, I, I kind of hid behind my screen, but... I, I haven't done that in and years. And it gets rid of that whole so, sense that you're better than they are. Right, right. Right. We're all playing together. We're all part of this together. I'm not better than you are. I just happen to be running. 
Yeah, exactly. All right. I want to thank you. This is, this has been enlightening. I've enjoyed our time together. Um, hopefully at some point down the road, we can do this. I'd, again. I'd love to. Yeah. We can talk about. All right. Else. So yeah, exactly. So ever wonder to yourself, how do I let this guy know how much I like or hate his podcast or think to yourself, man, I'd love to be a guest on his podcast. I have a great idea for a topic. Well, you're in luck. And Alexi, you were one of those guys. You sent me an email. You uh, sent me an email at whosepodcastisit at gmail.com, and we made this happen. If you're more into the social media stuff, you can find me on Facebook at POI Network or at Whose Podcast Is It Anyway. Either way, I look forward to hearing from you. Now, next week, I have Carl Olson returning to the show. I'm almost positive we'll be talking gaming. Uh, it's what specific points he wants to talk about this time, but I guarantee a lot like tonight, it will be a good time. And now we end this episode as we end every episode, Quote of the Day. I get all my quotes from BrainyQuotes.com. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. H.P. Lovecraft was an American author who achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He was virtually unknown and published only in pulp magazines before he died in poverty but he is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in his genre. Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island, where he spent most of his life. Among his most celebrated tales are The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, both canonical to the Cthulhu mythos. Are you much of a, of a mythos fan? Um, yeah, I think I think it's a very bizarre thing to, to pray to a god that the, the, the thing you want most is that you'll die soon. That's brilliant. That's absolutely right. <laughs> All right. And so with that, once again, thank you very much for being on. And uh, for those of you out there listening, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you again next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.